bagels and lox, pastrami and rye, and maybe a dollop of sour cream or applesauce on your latkes. The Jewish deli and its food is a staple of American city life, and it's delicious. But over the past decade, icons of the genre, from New York to Los Angeles, have closed down even as the food has become more popular. So why are the delis disappearing? I'm Gustavo Ariano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. It's Wednesday, September 29th, 2021. Today, we're looking at the Jewish deli. It's always been a nexus of tradition and assimilation, old country and new, with rugelach for dessert. We'll talk to an editor for one of the oldest Jewish publications in the United States about the deli's history and why they're such an important part of Jewish identity. And we'll also check in with a new wave deli, a vegan deli, who assures us that the Jewish deli ain't going nowhere. It's just doing what it's always done, adapt. Rob Eshman is the national editor for The Forward, which has covered Jewish trends in American life for over 120 years. He also posts recipes and food stuff on his personal Instagram page, Foodism. Rob, welcome to The Times. Hi, Gustavo. So set up the Jewish deli for folks who have never been to one. What do they sell? Who's eating there? And what are we eating? So, you know, a deli is traditional Ashkenazic Jewish food. It comes from Eastern Europe, most of it. I'm talking about the traditional, traditional deli. So you'll find corned beef, you'll find schmaltz, which is chicken fat. You'll find lox, of course, bagels, all the things that have in some ways become American foods, but they were, you know, traditionally foods out of Eastern Europe. And I'm, I'm not saying they were Jewish foods necessarily. Most foods are, you know, accretion and a combination of a lot of different cultures, but these have become associated with Eastern European Jewry. And what's their history in the United States? Oh, they go back to the beginning of the great wave of Jewish immigration to the turn of the century. Around the same time the forward started, you know, millions of Jews came over from Eastern Europe escaping pogroms and persecution, looking for economic opportunity. And they brought with them their foods. And those foods really weren't here before. So Americans got introduced to bagels. They got introduced to corned beef. They got introduced to lox. And these were, you know, foods that were pretty common in Europe, but not so common in America. And deli sprang up. How did the United States change those dishes that the Jews were bringing in, especially the Ashkenazi Jews? Marketing. What really happened in the United States is you had advertising, you had marketing, and these delis were in big cities. And so there was a lot of cultural mixing and everybody started to find their way to bagels. Everybody started to find their way to corned beef sandwiches and lox. And deli food became American food. Yeah, I mean, to the point where I still remember my first bagel. I was like 18, 19 years old, and I don't even know how I came about it. But I'm like, oh, a bagel. I've never seen this before. <laughs> oh, it's Jewish food. I'm like, this is good. And, you know, being in a part of Orange County where I didn't grow up along with a lot of Jews, but still it's just, you know, it's Americanized when a Mexican kid starting to like bagels. Yeah. You know, food is often kind of the vanguard of a culture. So it goes out ahead of the culture to announce that, hey, we're here and this is how you might know. It's like the calling card. And so a lot of people came into their first taste of Jewish culture literally was a taste. And what I've always found fascinating about the delis is their role in Jewish life. And look, all cultures have their markets and food gathering places. But something about delis, it's like a town square meets a place to grub, meets a place of cultural replenishment. So how did the deli assume that mystique in Jewish culture? It really became, along with synagogues, community centers, it became a Jewish, like you said, a Jewish place. It became a kind of a third home for American Jews. And it was a place you could always kind of walk into and instantly. For me, 
feel more at home than I felt, say, in a synagogue. It was kind of a second temple. Yeah. How was it for you growing up going to these delis? Oh, well, I grew up in Encino, in the old country, I call it. So, <laughs> so I had Froman's and Arts Deli, which is still around, which is great. Froman's is still around. And you walk in and it's that smell, that kind of salty, slightly fishy, smoky smell and the din of noise. You know, Stage Deli in Detroit, because of COVID, they had to go down to 25% capacity. And the guy just decided to close the inside and just do takeout. Because he said at 25% capacity, it doesn't feel like a deli. You have to have that kind of din. And it goes along with the smells. And it just feels like home. We'll be back after this break. Rob, in the past couple of years, you've been seeing iconic Jewish delis closing in L.A. and beyond. Greenblatt's closed in Studio City. Carnegie Deli closed in Manhattan back in 2016. Why are a lot of them shutting down? It's a combination of a lot of things. A lot of restaurants, as you know, are shutting down. So they've been hit by COVID like everybody else. Before that, the costs of running these delis, they have these huge menus, huge overhead, expensive food costs. It just became, you know... Many times it was the initial family to come over, then they went into ownership changes and things got messy. So like lots of different reasons, but yeah, I mean, as in the rest of the food industry, nothing lasts forever and things close. But, you know, there was a, a famous book called Save the Deli by David Sachs. About a year ago, he wrote a piece for me for the foreword where he said, this is just a common refrain in Jewish life. Oh my God, we're losing the delis. Like we're losing the synagogues. Like we're losing the next generation. Like we're losing the Jews. And yet what happens is you get this rebirth at the same time. So, yeah, a lot of delis have closed. A lot have opened. I think it's part of just the traditional assimilation of former ethnics into American life. So you do leave the old country. And here, of course, in the United States, the delis somehow become part of that old country. And as you assimilate more, it doesn't have that same focus in life. It becomes more of a nostalgia thing. And nostalgia is like you get it when you have a feeling for it as opposed to it being a day-to-day part of your life. You know, I don't know if I agree. I don't know if it's assimilation. I think it's just the business model changed. And it's not that, you know, Jews stopped eating this food. In fact, probably more people, you're eating this food. Like, more people are eating this food than ever. It's just the old model of how to present it to the public has changed. You know, so fast casual delis are a thing now, just like fast casual restaurants are. This guy who got a three Michelin stars up in, um, he ran a Meadowood restaurant in Napa, and he just opened a deli up in Napa, but it's fast casual. So things evolve, and they don't necessarily go away. Nobody's going to stop eating this food until, you know, global warming makes it impossible to get the food. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, until we have robot locks or something. And even then, like, locks, (laughs) locks will evolve, your schmear will evolve, something always happens. You know, it's like salt, fat, acid, heat. This food just hits that, and that is such a human thing, and it's not going away. And that's the other thing that's happening. You do have new wave delis that are opening up. You have Wexler's Deli in L.A. You have Wise Sons all across California. So with the younger generation, it's almost like they buy into the argument that your writer said in his essay, like, oh, my gosh, the delis are disappearing. Let's do as much as possible to save them. It's like those old Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney films. Let's put on a show to save the delis. Well, it's almost like you think of the steak restaurant. You know, the old style steak restaurant disappeared. Nobody was writing like eulogies about it. But they disappeared. But then you had this whole new wave of 
places come up that were kind of retro style. And I do think that that's what's happening with the deli as well. Like a new generation is taking this stuff they like from it and doing that. What you do lose is kind of that old, I don't know, fat and grease in the walls. So the millennial deli just has a different feel. But in some ways, the food is better. If the millennial deli is different from the old deli, where are the places in Jewish life now that assume what the deli culture used to have? That's a great question. There's still a lot. I mean, Brent's is still around. Brent is like a classic old deli. Froman's is still around. Uh, Mort's is still around. Langer's, thank God, is still around. I mean, when Langer's <laughs> go, we, we leave L.A., right? Langer's is in Alvarado. And then you have Langer's daughter, who opened a place, I think, on Sunset called Daughter's Deli. So that is the classic exact illustration of what I'm talking about. You have the one generation deli, which is really the old school place where you walk in and you just feel like, wow, I'm, I'm in shul. And then you have the daughter's deli, which doesn't have that same feeling, but it has great food. Rob, thank you so much for this interview. Oh, it's great talking to you, Gustavo. Coming up, we'll talk to a next generation deli owner in LA and see how she's helping these classic foods evolve. Megan Tucker is chef and curator of the vegan pop-up deli Morton Betty's. They take classic Jewish deli dishes and remove the animal factor. Think pastrami made from mushrooms and a matzo ball soup, not from chicken stock, but rather miso turmeric broth. Mm-mm-mm. Megan, welcome to The Times. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Southern California, of course, has a big vegan community, big Jewish community, and those who love the food of both of these cultures. So what sparked the decision to combine the two of them? So back in kind of 2017, I was working for Whole Foods on the corporate side of things and prepared foods. And I just really wanted to start a business to kind of get myself back in the kitchen and also in order to fund a farm animal sanctuary. And so I was thinking, you know, how can I leverage what I am, am good at, what I'm, you know, an expert at in order to make that happen? And so I started thinking like, what business could I create? And I realized that there were no, you know, vegan Jewish delis. And at the time I was working on a carrot lox recipe mm. and I was also working on a beet pepperoni recipe. And one day I, I made a batch of the, the beet pepperoni and I realized like, wow, this could be corned beets if I kind of like, you know, did some different spices and that just like all in that moment, I realized I need to veganize the Jewish deli and I'm going to name it after my grandparents. That's awesome. In your time, have you seen Jewish deli classics evolve? I mean, before you veganize some, were they always kind of the same for you growing up? Yeah. So I want to say that the Jewish deli kind of as an institution, it really hasn't changed a whole lot until maybe the last few years where people are bringing in some more seasonality, I think, especially here in Los Angeles. But I think that one of the things that maybe makes people so nostalgic about a Jewish deli is that it sort of is unchanged to some degree. You know, it's like the same matzo ball soup and the same latkes, the same, you know, mile high pastrami sandwich that has always been there. And so I think for some people that lends some comfort and nostalgia, but I think for others who are looking to, you know, eat differently, it makes you want for something else. Who's a typical Morton Betty's customer? 
want to say we have a few different kinds of customers, but I think the typical customer is either someone who's vegan, who's never had Jewish food before. And so they're really excited to try something different. And then we have vegetarians and vegans who are Jewish, who are so excited to, you know, try the foods that they grew up with and maybe they haven't had for a long time. I'm always really excited to meet those folks because just, you know, seeing their reaction just makes me so happy. I can imagine it's like, you know, when vegan Mex, when you try, say, vegan chorizo, which almost is a contradiction. How could you possibly veganize pork that's cooked in lard and then you eat it? You're like, oh, my Lord, it tastes just like pork. So I'm sure you see those reactions again and again, like, wow, this lox actually tastes like lox. Then we also have the customers who are just curious, you know, they're maybe they're they're not vegan or vegetarian at all. They just want to check it out. They're foodies. And I love that too. I love like the curiosity to try something new and, you know, venture outside of what they're familiar with. So the latke egg and cheese is on challah, but then there's the bako egg and cheese bagel, yeah. which is basically this, but without the latke. We also have a latke special. You said that the sweet potato challah with the like has good. It's yummy. Yes. Yeah. It depends on what you're in, in the Looking mood for. for. Okay. Yeah. I um. I think I'll go for that. Okay. Yeah. Your food sits at this nexus of two cultures that are very proud of who they are and feel very strongly about what they eat. Have you gotten any pushback from traditionalists in both camps? I'd say the the pushback that I've gotten from a few folks has been, you know, I like to put a little spin on a lot of things. And so, you know, the black and white cookies that we make, for example, they're chocolate chip tahini, black and white cookies. And so some people would rather just have a veganized version of the traditional sort of like lemon vanilla cakey cookie. And that's okay. We might make those someday, but I wanted to do something a little bit fun and different. And so kind of get a little bit of pushback there. And then there's a, you know, a group of people that keep kosher and we work out of a shared kitchen that, you know, is not kosher certified. And so although we use kosher certified wine and vinegar, it's sort of like double dipping to make sure that it's also vegan because kosher certified wine cannot have animal products. So it's sort of a win win for the vegan customers who, you know, aren't concerned about kosher. But because we aren't certified with any, you know, rabbinical authority, there are some people that would maybe be interested in trying, but won't. But I'd say that's really the only pushback that we've gotten. Yeah. Plus, a lot of Jewish delis aren't kosher at all. So the people who aren't sure they're on board with the new flavors, once they actually eat the food, I imagine they're like, I don't need to push back anymore because this is absolutely amazing. Yes. Yeah. We've gotten so much good feedback recently at Smorgasburg. Just so many new customers checking us out. It's been so great. Let me know if you have any questions. Oh, you have a pretty big menu. Well, and it's even, it's even bigger when, when you get when you, in there. I don't, yeah. I don't have pictures of everything. Yeah. Up. What does the food mean to you? Like, what does it mean for you to be making vegan Jewish food? It's fulfilling so many different things for me. I've been in the food industry uh, since I was a teenager and worked in bakeries and restaurants and grocery stores, large and small. And so to provide food that's accessible from a price point perspective and also approachable from an ingredient perspective, 
is really meaningful to me. One of the things that was important to me from the beginning is to really celebrate vegetables through the menu. And so Morton Betty's doesn't make or include any like fake meats. I think for people that aren't interested in vegan food that has a lot of processed ingredients, we are perfect for that person because we're vegetable based. And then to make food to really honor my grandparents is really meaningful to me. Mort actually passed away before I was born. He had cancer and later in life he had diabetes. His hobby was actually, he was a butcher. He had a room set up in their house to, you know, he would buy like a half of a cow and break it down himself and, you know, give some to people and had a couple freezers. So we had beef all the time. And I just imagine that, you know, maybe if his eating habits and hobbies were a little bit different, that maybe he would have been in my life, at least as a child. And then Betty passed away when I was in high school. So yeah, I think to make food that they enjoyed, that they really loved in a way that's going to promote health a little bit more means a lot to me as well. Megan, thank you so much for this interview. Oh, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Tomorrow, Hollywood might go on pause because of a crew strike for the first time in nearly 15 years. What does that mean for your favorite shows? Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Denise Guerra, Melissa Kaplan, Marina Peña, and Ashley Brown. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. Our editors are Shawnee Hilton and Lauren Rabb. And our theme music is by Andrew Eben. Like what you're listening to? Then make sure to follow The Times on whatever platform you use. Don't make us the Puccia Podcasts. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news in this month. Gracias. <laughs>